Hi, friends. You're listening to the Lessons from Dead Guys podcast, a work of Exile Liturgy in collaboration with TheologyCorner.net. My name is Ryan Cagle, and you're listening to our last episode of the Not-So-Ordinary Time Season, where we have different authors, pastors, bloggers on the show uh, to talk about their lives and their and their work. Uh, this week, I'm joined by the Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney, an Episcopal priest and Hebrew Bible scholar who has authored numerous books. Uh, and today, we are going to be talking about our latest book, which is called A Womanist Mid. Rash, an introduction, a reintroduction to the women of the Torah and the throne. And it is just a fantastic book. I uh, have been reading it all through this last week or so, and it's just beautiful, beautiful book. But I know most of you probably uh, are maybe foreign to those two words, womanist and midrash. And so uh, I'm just going to ask uh, Reverend Gaffney, if she would, just to break down and unpack those two terms for us as we get started. Certainly. Womanist is... As Alice Walker says, comparable to feminist in the same way that purple is to lavender. That's a way of saying that womanism is Black women's feminism, and it is so much more. I like to say that it is a richer, deeper, thicker feminism. From an academic standpoint, womanism is distinct from feminism in terms of how it engages the world. Womanism is intersectional. That means it looks at different aspects of being human at the same time. Uh, Because Black women are women and Black people, we look at race and gender, but we also look at class. And then depending on the womanist scholar, there may be other identity markers that are used as we read texts or read the world, like orientation, like physical ability, like immigration status, and so forth. So your listeners can think of womanism then as a multi-hued and complex feminism. Right, right. You know, um, I think I the only, I guess, prior to your work and, and a few others, um, as far as womanist theology was, um, and I'm going to butcher this word. I barely speak English, much less Spanish. So mujerista theology, which is Hispanic. Mujerista. There we go. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So I've had some um, familiarity with that, uh, reading liberation theology and things like that. And so um, I've talked a little bit about womanist theology on the podcast before, but I'm really glad to have someone here who's obviously very articulated and, and knowledgeable in the subject being a womanist theologian and, and not coming from another middle-class white guy like myself. So thanks again for that uh, explanation. And so again, and then I guess the second word just would be midrash, which I'm, I'm kind of familiar with, but I don't think the majority of my listeners, especially the people who are kind of coming out of evangelicalism, um, which is kind of the, the target audience for this podcast would really know what that even is. Certainly. But let me back up a little bit and say that I'm not a womanist theologian. I'm a womanist biblical scholar. Theology is a different discipline. Um, Right. Sorry. That's all right. Uh, People like to roll the whole religious academic enterprise under theology. And as Gustavo Gutierrez said, we all do theology on the side. But this is coming out of a biblical studies framework. And that's how we actually get to Midrash, because Midrash is the classical and technical uh, rabbinic Jewish term for exegesis. That is the uh, rigorous interpretation of the biblical text. And in 
rabbinic Jewish scholarly practice, Midrash has a number of components from uh, translating the texts again and wrestling with, with clues and questions in the Hebrew language to reading out of the text um, guidance for how to pattern one's life to asking questions about what is unstated in the text or sometimes what is repeated or patterns in the text to sometimes answering some of those questions, suggesting answers, uh, and filling in blanks on occasion, providing names for characters who are unnamed, uh, providing uh, dialogue even, uh, expanding the story so that they fill the framework more completely. That whole list of activities falls under the rubric of Midrash. Uh, Many readers and hearers are familiar with Midrash as a kind of storytelling, expanding the text, adding in characters, etc. But it really applies to the full work of exegesis or biblical interpretation. And I, I use those two words because this project is womanist in that that is the type of feminism that I'm doing, but it's also Midrashic in that I'm deeply indebted to rabbinic Jewish scholarship, which is part of my training and helped me to ask questions or think about the text in a particular way. And I do that um, in conversation with a similar way of engaging the text from African-American preaching. So those two words describe what I'm doing in this project and some of its um, academic and religious ancestry. Right. And so I know um, I, I, you mentioned being trained um, in, in a Jewish context. I think I've, I've heard where you had, you had spent like, I think, a, a decade or so in, um, synagogue, in su- synagogue life and within Jewish community life. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. While I was in Philadelphia teaching uh, at my first uh, faculty position, I was a member of the Reconstructionist uh, of a Reconstructionist uh, Minyan uh, congregation, um, and that was about 10 years. But when I talk about training, I'm talking about the work that I did on my PhD at Duke, and one of the areas in which I concentrated and specialized was uh, rabbinics. Awesome. Yeah. It, it seems like to me, like just so much of Western Christi- Christianity is, is so detached from the Hebrew tradition and to me, to me, which is just crazy. And not that I've had any kind of formal training in it or whatever, um, or any kind of formal training or uh, even really been s- steeped in any kind of community that was, is rooted in the, the Hebrew Testament of the, of the scriptures. And so I just found that so fascinating. And uh, when I, when I heard that about your life, that you had, you had spent time, you know, you had trained in that, that kind of uh, environment, but also spent so much time within um, a Jewish congregation. And so I, I really thought that was awesome. And my familiarity with uh, Midrash is kind of what you talked about is that a lot of people just think about it as kind of a storytelling side of things. Um, and so reading your book was kind of eye opening for me to realize how much broader that term is and how much more it, income, you know, it, it, it covers. And, uh, and so reading your book, uh, one thing you, you talk about in the beginning of the book is like a sanctified imagination, which is something that you said you've encountered in Christ, black Christian churches, um, uh, I guess in in your youth, and that's something I've never heard of before, uh, and so I just thought that was really awesome. 
and that kind of phrasing and how you talked about it. I cut my teeth in the Pentecostal slash charismatic church, my Christian teeth anyway. Um, and so I would say that I've experienced kind of similar moments where people would approach the scriptures imaginatively or with some kind of freedom. Um, but I can't say that that approach is ever encouraged because there's still a heavy amount of evangelicalism and heavy amount of like fundamentalist kind of approaches to scripture there. And so I don't think it was like I was ever uh, taught that it was okay to do that, but I definitely experienced it. Um, and so I, you talk about in the book about how those two things, uh, how the Jewish side, the, the Midrash, and how that uh, intersects with the sanctified imagination that you learned and experienced in African-American churches. Um, and so could you talk about that for a second? Certainly. Um, in both contexts, as I'm sure was the case in your Pentecostal context, there is a reverence for the biblical text. Um, in some fundamentalist contexts, uh, that reverence becomes uh a type of idolatry, but in and that includes some African American churches certainly. Under the rubric of that uh, reverence, uh, as people focus on how to make this text come alive, um, uh, I would hear preachers adding details uh, that uh, made their sermons more engaging and creative. And I still remember. Uh, a pastor who's a friend of mine uh, preaching on David in his chariot. He said that, you know, David was uh, hopped up in his chariot on 22s and he was leaning to the side (laughs) with the gangster lean. And uh, he had that new uh, fat roly sundial on his wrist. And, you know, (laughs) so what characterized it so much for me is that, the details were not only imaginative, but they were outlandish. And so no one except maybe children uh, would be confused as to where the text began and where the sanctified imagination began. Uh, And then rhetorically, what all of the pastors and preachers I have heard do this, do is get the congregation's uh, permission. And they do it by saying something, you know, in my sanctified imagination, I see David hopped up on 22s. And so by introducing it with that line, it signals to the congregation who might otherwise be extremely literalistic, I'm going to go beyond the text here. And I want you to know that I know I'm going beyond the text. And by calling it sanctified imagination, you can trust me to do that because I'm not telling you this is what is actually in the text. And by bracketing it with those words, uh, they have permission to do that work. And it's always been uh, well-received if the preacher was a good preacher. Right. I think that's probably where my experience with kind of more imaginative storytelling versions or, or going beyond the text would probably just really diverge from that, is that a lot of times it was almost, um, there was no... You couldn't tell where it began and end. I guess, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't tell the where someone was moving beyond the scripture unless you just had the scripture in front of your your hands. And and so it would be less imaginative, but I, I guess then say you know David riding a chariot with twenty twos. But it was like almost like an authority kind of mindset, so they could say these things, and you just have to. Mm-hmm 
take them as they are, you know? So I think that's probably where it really diverged from your experience in, in the African-American church about, uh, um, you know, the sanctified imagination. But I definitely think uh, Pentecostalism kind of gave me some kind of leeway or some kind of foundation um, to eventually leave a more literalist mindset, um, which I don't really hold to anymore. Um, and so that's, I just thought that was really interesting how, you know, this Midrash is being so ancient and which I'm sure a sanctified imagination has roots within African-American culture predating, you know, being here in America and all of those things. But just that approach, it's, it's there. Um, but I think especially for me, and I think probably for a lot of my listeners is that um, what we consider normal is really just Eurocentric, you know, uh, and consider the standard. And, and so that's why one thing I was so thankful for your book, and I'm so thankful um, just about how even so many ways, like being in my head, I think, you know, I'm more of a progressive Christian. I've left some of these ideas behind and I'm, I'm trying to get away from um, these readings that are very Eurocentric or, or Western even. And, and then I read books like yours and it just, it's like, I, I'm hit all over again with all these areas where the spirit needs to move in my life and, and, and push me to see things um, outside the lenses that I'm, that I think I've acquired new lenses, but in so many ways I still have these old lenses on. And so I'm deeply appreciative of your book, um, Reverend Gaffney. I just thought it was great. And, um, through the whole thing, I, it kind of made me feel like all these different emotions, um, which I know that might be, I don't, I don't know if how, how people have responded to you about the book so far. Um, you know, but I think a lot of times it happens, it probably doesn't happen as often from a, a biblical studies, you know, uh, standpoint, but like when I was reading about the diseased women and your midrash that you wrote on the diseased women, I was literally, I was teared up and because it just made me realize how often I push people outside the camp and uh, women, how much I, uh, these people that I know and, but outside of our church, they're outside of the camp, but they've created their own community and they're thriving in the spirit and in community. But, we're not letting them in. And so it, it moved your book moved me in a lot of ways and it has educated me in more ways than I could ever account in this, <laughs> in this episode of the podcast. So I just want to thank you for that. And, um, well, I, it's even, even I was go ahead. Thank you. Sorry. And I, I certainly appreciate that. And it's, it is good for me to hear that among the, uh, ways in which the text is being received is that it has, uh, some charismatic, uh, force to it. That is that people are engaging it in some ways, uh, like a like a written sermon that people are feeling challenged and encouraged or convicted um, in the ways that they deal not only with the biblical text uh, but with people um, as a result of how they've understood the text. Uh, and let me just say for your readers about the passage to which you're referring is. Uh, one of the things I do in this book is look for uh, women who are not well known or maybe hidden in a plural or even a hypothetical. So this text is uh, the text in uh, Leviticus that talks about what happens when people get a skin disease and the disease has traditionally been understood as leprosy, but we know medically that's not what it is. So I simply call it skin disease. And I write about what happens when that person is quarantined. Uh, the biblical story goes on with the adventures on the way to the land of Canaan, but I spend some time writing about what it means if you can't go back into the Israelite camp and break quarantine because 
your spots won't go away. Um, and there's some provision for that in the text, what has to happen to be readmitted to the primary community. And so I talk about what it must be like to make a life for yourself on the, not just on the margins, as so many of us in progressive Christianities talk about who's on the margins of our community, but when you are well and truly outside of the community. Uh, and I find that there is life and love and hope there, even uh, when someone is on the outside. So that's the text that Ryan is talking about. And uh, so I'm glad that you had that emotional reaction to it. Well, yeah, it was again. Thanks for writing it. it. It just, I don't know. It was just, it was one of those things that just, it hit, it hit me really hard. Um, and so, and like I said, I, I felt other emotions. Like I just, I've, I've not wanted to put the book down the whole time I've had it. Uh, but even I found myself getting angry because so much, there's th- just so many things I just realized that I've glossed over. Um, is, uh, I can't tell, I've read, I've read, the whole Bible several times in my life. And there's just so many things that just within even the first, you know, first 50 pages of your book that I've just completely somehow just completely because of the lenses I've been given and because the approaches to scripture that are still deeply embedded in, in how I approach scripture, despite being on whatever the other side of post deconstruction, um, there's still so much I've missed and it made me mad. It, It made me mad to think, you know, I've like, I've just looked over this whole beautiful, rich thing here right in front of me and I've missed it. Um, and so your book has really challenged me in a lot of good ways and I'm very thankful for it. Um, I think as far as the book goes, the one section when I first got the book that I was really most excited about was uh, getting to the section where you talk about mm-hmm. Hagar. Um, there, there's something about her naming God that is just, it's been one of the things that's always just really, um, it, it does something that's intrigued me. And so you, your book, you, in the book, you point out that um, Hagar can't be her real name or uh, that, that, you know, that, it's a masculine name. It means foreigner. So in my head, I, as I read that section, I was just thinking about the fact that here's this woman um, who God has made promises to, who's seen God, and she has no name in a sense. And of course, I know she has a name, but in the text, she doesn't. We don't see her real name, and so she has no name. But and so he, she who has no name, names God. And um, I just thought that was beautiful. Um, and so could you just take a moment to talk about Hagar and how you approach her in your Certainly. book? Certainly. Hagar is a ancestress for the womanist community. Um, even outside of womanist thought, uh, generations of Black folk referred to themselves as uh, Hagar's children. Um, and that has to do with the ways in which white folk, particularly in the West, appropriate the scriptures to be about themselves and read themselves as the heroes and heroes, heroines uh, of Israel. And uh, the United States is to some, no small degree founded on this. So we've got all these sort of new Canaans and new Jerusalems, uh, biblical names, and the idea that conquering the West was uh, conquering Canaan all over again. And uh, slavery figures into it in that the patriarchs are given slaves and slavery is normalized and sometimes sanctified by the text. So uh, culturally, uh, white folk were reading as Abraham and Sarah, uh, leaving the enslaved woman from an African nation uh, to then be read 
by Black folk. So Hagar has this this deep connection and resonance for many womanist scholars. I was interested in the fact that Hagar, Sarah, and Abraham or Ibrahim also are shared by our Muslim brothers and sisters. And so while their story does not appear uh, with as much detail in Quran, um, there there are accounts of their adventures, for lack of a better word, uh, in the Hadith. And so I wrote the story of Hagar, Hagar, uh, as she's, uh, her name may be pronounced uh, in my terrible Arabic, um, from the tradition of both sets of texts. Um, so if we think of this as a woman who is an ancestress in two religious traditions, what is it that all of her people left behind in their stories about her? So uh, I tried to do a full uh, treatment of her. I also, uh, at reading as an African-American woman and being well aware of the lenses that you talk about that Americans have for the scriptures, uh, which is reading from a white male perspective, even if that's not your identity, I spent some time uh, in the Hagar story, in the Sarah story, and in other stories, making slavery enslavement more visible to the Christian reader who tends to take it as background and that's how things were uh, making the reader uncomfortable, I hope. You can tell me if I succeeded with that. Um, As they wrestle with what it means to have holy figures and sometimes even God who bless uh, enslavement and the use of women's bodies for reproduction, forced reproduction, that's simply rape. And we're talking about um, sexual assault and harassment in our culture right now. And that means we need to look at the cultural attitudes that we've inherited from the scriptures that say some people don't have the right to their own body and their own sexuality, which is certainly what was argued in American chattel slavery. So I try to do uh, all of those things together. And using the classical tools of Midrash, I work at the text on a very fine level from Hebrew. Uh, One of the things your readers uh, might like to know about this book is that every passage of scripture that I work with, every character comes out of a passage. Uh, I translate that text myself, uh, sort of starting from scratch, and then use what I see in the Hebrew text and other ancient manuscripts to do that interpretive work. And so one of the interesting things about Hagar's story is the verb that's used when the text is telling us how badly Sarah treats her and how that word winds up being translated in such a way to let Sarah off the hook. Um, The verb ana is a very violent verb. And when it's used of the Israelites and the Egyptians, um, in Exodus, it's translated things like oppress and afflict. When the verb is used in situations between women and men, it's a verb that indicates rape. So when Hagar runs into the desert because of what Sarah has done to her, the text is telling us that that is physical and sexual violation which makes sense when you understand 
that this woman was forced to have sex with, and we should really say raped by this man as long as it took to get her pregnant. Uh, but what many of our translations say, the NRSV, for example, is that Sarah um, dealt with her harshly. So if we're going to tell the truth about our own scriptures and how they've shaped our own society, uh, then we need to tell the truth in how we interpret as well as, excuse me, how we translate as well as how we interpret the text. So that's some of what I do with Hagar. Yeah, I, I, you know, I love the NRSV until I read your book. I just, <laughs> I love the NRSV until I read your book. And I was like, man, like, I was like, how, you know, why do we water it down so bad? You know, and what's funny to me is that so many people I know, like, that are not, I guess, more academic or, or even progressive, like, they just think the NRSV is just, you know, like the devil. Like, I know some people that are just, you know, not for it. Um, and so being United Methodist Church, that's like every Bible we have in our church is NRSV. But after reading your book, I was like, oh, man, like, you know, and it just shows, you know, we, we have those biases. We have those. And one thing that you you as you mentioned it a couple of times in the book, you you point out, you know, that you come to the text with biases, too. And um, I think the problem lies is when we don't believe that at all. And I think that happens on more fundamentalist kind of conservative side, but it also happens on progressive sides of Christianity. Um, and something you do with the text is that I love is that you, um, you don't, you don't try to water, you don't try to whitewash it. You don't try to water it down. Um, and for someone, you know, it's just, there's some hard things, especially in the old Testament. And it seems like, you know, on the conservative side of things so often we have this dichotomy and they want to whitewash all those things and just make them, you know, try to doctor them up and we re-re- we reword things or we just make it out to be like not as bad. So Hagar's not a slave. She's just a maid, you know, she's a maid or, you know, and so like, you know, we just we use all this language to doctor it up on that side. But then at the same time, a lot of times on the progressive side, especially with the Old Testament, um, and I think this this happens a lot, um, is that we just try to act like the Old Testament is not there for the most part, you know, um, we act like it's just not relevant or everything is just this awful mistaken misconception of God. And we just let the stories kind of go out the window and do their own thing, which is almost not, I wouldn't say quite, you know, like Marcion or anything, because they don't necessarily inherently reject the whole text, but um, we don't wrestle with it a lot. I don't think. And I, I say we, and I, I'm not saying all progressive Christians, but um, I think it happens especially a lot in a lot of um, male uh, white progressive versions of Christianity anyway. Um, and so you, you, you do a good job at making, uh, even me, someone, I, I feel like I have a, I had a pretty good handle on some of these, you know, concepts and things, the old Testament making me feel uncomfortable, um, and, and bothering me. But at the same time, it's like the scriptures are in one hand, just they're beloved, but they're also bothering, they're bothersome. And, uh, I, I think you did such a fantastic job through the whole book, kind of embodying those two things. And, uh, navigating them in a way that's saying, you know, these things are troubling, they're hard, they're not pretty. Um, but somewhere in between these lines, there's God. And he's showing well, up. To I these certainly people. appreciate that. Let me uh, go back and uh, redeem the NRSV a little bit. Uh, even with its difficulties, it's still one of the, if not the best. Uh, scholarly translation of the Bible. Uh, Its problem is that 
it was conceived of as a congregational text and uh, some of the biases in what that meant to that uh, all white translation committee that had, as far as I can tell, two or three women uh, on it was that um, you shouldn't. And so this is a value judgment. You shouldn't say some things in church. So even though the text says some things, uh, they would change the text to correspond uh, with uh, their understanding of not being sexually explicit, not being certain things. And then, of course, we get this vicious cycle where people then say, um, you know, we can't talk about this. This is not in the Bible. Actually, that is in the Bible, but it was changed in the Bible you read. But but the NRV is st- NRSV is still a, a good, solid Bible, and I assign it. But it's a reminder that no text is without bias and that the translation committee doesn't make their their biases and all of the choices they made explicit. Um, the other thing I wanted to follow up on and, ooh, I may have just lost that thought. Mm. <laughs> We're going to go on and... Uh, if, if it comes back to me, uh, but you're talking about uh, progressive lenses and go ahead and ask another question because that one is truly gone. All right, no problem. If it just comes back up, just go with it. Um, and so one thing that it seems like to me is that, you know, you, you do a good job at kind of laying it all out there in the book. But, you know, of course, the text, you know, they're, they're, they're Iron Age texts. They're, they're, they're a product of their time. Um, and, you know, the Old Testament and something I did not even conceive, you know, in my more evangelical fundamentalist days is just how multivocal the Old Testament is. And you have competing stories. Uh, but even even further down, I think, than the surface level competing stories that I denied is that one thing your book does really well is that despite, you know, a lot of the patriarchal perspectives and um, and and how the editors and, and the compilers of, of the, the Hebrew Bible, um, it seems like, you know, in one breath, you know, they're, they're portraying this, you know, very patriarchal, almost sometimes misogynistic kind of um, framework. But it's like um, truly the, the the women in the narrative, the 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 womanist, the the they are acting womanish, as you talk about in the book and in the text, they're going to they're going to fight to break through. And we might we might get a verse here and a verse there. But through is one thing your book just, I think, did a really good job of pointing out was just that, um, you know, these women in, in these stories, the the from, you know, uh, from Hagar to, to Rebecca and to the Egyptian midwives, you know, uh, all, all these women, they, they push through the context, they push through the narrative and they won't let us uh, be settled with yeah. us not knowing that they're there despite all the other stuff. And so I, I really like that. Um, that and how, how just your whole project is focusing in on these, on these women who have um, not being heard. Um, and so, you know, these women exist between the lines. And I think these kind of readings, and I think your book is so important. And um, I just, I don't know, to me, I, and that, that's kind of observant, the observation I made was just that these women are going to be heard. Yes. And, and, and would that you agree really with that? At the core of the project, I wanted to do it on uh, women no one had ever heard of. And my publisher was convinced that nobody would buy it. They didn't recognize at least some names in the table of contents. Um, but I was 
particularly interested in in uh, people getting to know some of these characters and to think about uh, characters who are bundled off in groups. So uh, whether you take the book of Joshua literally or not, literarily, uh, Joshua is a genocidal text and it has God calling for genocide and city after city. Um, you know, when you say the Canaanites or, or you say all of the ites, you know, Canaanites, Hivites, Perizzites, uh, Hittites, uh, Jebusites, etc. Um, you know, I want to slow that down and say the women, the children, and the men of Canaan. Let's let's take seriously that this text is claiming that the Israelites killed all of them. This is the Iron Age. They would have stabbed them to death. They would have crushed the baby's skulls. Is is this what we're saying? So by by not just saying you know Joshua defeated the Canaanites, but by saying uh, Joshua and the Israelite troops annihilated every living Canaanite woman and child along with their men makes these characters more visible. Now, I do remember what I was thinking about before. You introduced a part of this conversation talking about um, perceptions around the Hebrew scriptures. You said Old Testament. Um, And I wanted to, to go there because the lenses that many of us were cultured into reading with uh, also have disdain for the Hebrew Bible as being old, uh, as being superseded, as having, you know, problematic depictions of God. Uh, But those lenses uh, turn off when they get to uh, the newer Testament. And the truth is, there's a lot of problematic stuff there. Um, even though we talk about that age in terms of it being the Roman period, uh, culturally, it's still the Iron Age. Um, and so we want to talk about the language of slave and slavery. Why does Jesus use the language of slavery as a normative way of addressing the people who are his disciples? Right? Um, Jesus accepts slavery. I mean, he's got a great bumper sticker. Anyone who the sun sets free is free indeed. That looks real good on a T-shirt. But he didn't free anybody and he didn't call for anybody to be free. Uh, He walked around and taught in a situation where people were being enslaved, which meant that they were being beaten, mutilated, raped, sold away from their families, being used to breed generations of slaves. Um, so if I had written uh, on the New Testament, uh, I would have spent some time talking about that episode where Jesus raises the centurion's servant, as they like to say, I'm going to say slave, and right. and ask the question, what was it like for a younger man to be enslaved to an older man? There is virtually almost certainly the possibility of sexual abuse in that relationship. And I got to wonder if that young man was happy to have been resurrected and returned to his enslaver, right? There's an African-American spiritual that says, um, before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. I always... Think of the dissonance of that when I think of that story. Um, 
So I've probably horrified your readers right now that I'm coming for Jesus, but Jesus and I have been at this for a while, and he knows when I do make it into the queendom uh, and see him and the Blessed Virgin, one of my first questions is going to be, what's up with all this slavery BS in the Gospels? So we, but we've not been conditioned to question Jesus or the New Testament the way that we condition, we question the Hebrew Bible. And some of that is anti-Judaism and some of it is anti-Semitism. And the church has a terrible history with both of those in biblical interpretation. Right. I I love the church fathers, but it's right. I, I love the church fathers, but it's like, you know, you're, I, we'll be reading them and it'll be just something that'll be so good. And then out of nowhere, just this heavy anti, you know, Semitic kind of anti-Jewish kind of mindset. Uh, and so it just, it, it's, it's, it's been there since early on and uh, we haven't for some reason still haven't, you know um, I guess moved past it. I made one commitment when I was, you know, when I, when I was getting ready for this, this episode, this interview with you, there's, I was not going to call it the old <laughs> Testament and sure enough, I did it. And, uh, because I, I don't, I don't, I don't really think about it that way, but it's, it's still there. It's still so deeply embedded in, in the way I talk about it. And, um, I have such a huge respect for the Hebrew scriptures, but you're right. We, we kind of, uh, especially in progressive circles, we kind of, we kind of look at the, the, the Hebrew scriptures and, and the Hebrew Bible kind of with disdain and we doctor up, like you said, the New Testament. But what's crazy is that so much like Jesus is, you know, his, his, the largest section of the, the construction of the Sermon on the Mount that we have about nonviolence and all these other things is in Matthew, which is also the same gospel that talks more about like, you know, people being tormented in fire and judgment than any other, the, any of the other gospels. Um, and so, you know, we have all these problematic things, just like, you know, you said, Jesus, not really him using a, a mindset of slavery. And um, we see that in Paul too. And, um, and those things in the new Testament have been, and you pointed out specifically in, in um, the Hebrew Bible to justify slavery um, uh, chattel slavery and, and all these different things. But the new Testament was also used to um, support though, that, that structure and support that injustice in our world. And so uh, the whole Bible's messy. And I think um a lot of people just don't want to deal with that. We want it to be clean, even in progressive circles. We want it, it, it the, the Hebrew Bible, looking at it with disdain, gives us a scapegoat. Well, that was God, you know, there was a, you know, misconceptions about God, but here's Jesus, you know, and, but they don't want to, like you said, they don't want to deal with the problem, the problems that arise out of the gospels and out of the, out of the, um, you know, the, the, the Christian canon and, uh and so it just, I'm, I'm right there with you. And so I think, I think Jesus is going to be ready for your question, but I, I definitely, I think it's a valid one. And I think it's one we should be asking. And um, same, same thing with just the way, way we approach the scriptures in the Hebrew Bible. There's, we need to be asking these questions. Um, and, you know, so I just, I'm right there with you. I think that was, that's a really good, and that was a really good I'll point to make. I'll say one last thing about Jesus that, He's really how I got into the study of the Hebrew Bible. I read uh, Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, uh, as a first-year seminarian. It was in my first semester, first class, and uh, became really clear with uh, newly opened eyes about the essentialness of Jesus's Jewish identity 
and him doing the work that he did from that context, not against that context. And as, uh, as a teacher, as, as an interpreter of, of, of Bible, of Torah, that it was from that biblical context that everything we know about Jesus emerged. And so as he was wont to say, um, um, you've seen it written, but I say unto you, uh, he was always in conversation with the text, wrestling with the text, talking back to the text, uh, rewriting it when necessary, midrashing the text. And so I, the way I framed it for myself is that if I wanted to understand this Jesus character and this Jesus movement, I needed to do it uh, from the perspective of the religion of Jesus, which is Howard Thurman's book. But that religion is fully grounded in the scriptures of Jesus, which are the Hebrew Bible. So that that's literally how I got there. Um, right. And so when I preach, I often, I prefer to preach from the Hebrew Bible uh, just as an educational uh, paradigm, but also it's just a much richer canon for me. Uh, I won't even tell you and your audience what I think about uh, epistles, Pauline or not. But when I do that, um, every <laughs> once in a while, someone will say, you know, you're a priest. We read the gospel. You can preach the gospel. And I say, Jesus preached the gospel every day of his life. And he did it from the Hebrew Bible. Um, yes. Right. That's good. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I, I think so. So many people. I I was in a church service one time, and um, the the pastor said something along. He was actually like evangelist. He was like, you know, he, he wasn't like at our church or whatever. But um, he came out and he preached whatever, and he he made mention that Jesus was Jewish and not a not a Christian. And this person was so mad. They were like, what do you mean Jesus wasn't Christian? And like, you know, it just never like, I guess, clicked with them, you know, that Jesus was not a Christian. He was a Jew, a, you know, a first century Jewish man, deeply embedded in the Jewish faith and in the Hebrew scriptures. And um, and so I think as so much, I think a lot of it goes back to that, you know, anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic kind of mindsets. But for me, to know Jesus, and like you said, I, I need to know the Hebrew scriptures better. I need to know the world that he lived in and, and how he perceived God and, and how he wrestled with those same scriptures and, and the tradition surrounding them. Um, and so we, we miss a lot. In the New So much of the New Testament really and ultimately makes no sense if you don't know something about the context of the history or, or, or how the rabbis perceive certain teachings in the Torah and, and different things like that. But um, – evangelicalism for the most part, at least on the lower end uh, of things, doesn't seem very concerned with it. Um, so I'm with you. I think that, I think it's necessary. And I think that whole old and new kind of divide, even though I use that term sometimes, it's not how I necessarily perceive it, um, definitely needs to be abandoned in our day. Um, and so some, something else in your, in the book, there's just, there were so many things, like I mentioned that I, I kind of, I've just glossed over. Um, like um, how Rebecca, you know, she had this decision. She she kind of had her her decision had weight in Mary and Isaac. It wasn't, you know, Isaac just showed up and took her and bam, that there was some like that the period she waited, there was consent. 
Um, and so the, those things are big. And that goes back to the whole, these women, you know, in the narrative showing us, you know, that they're there, I think. And even like uh, how you pointed out how Rachel was a sheep herder. I've, I've read through that whole story a million times. and I don't think I've ever gave so that any attention what whatsoever. Those two examples are pointing to is that women's presentation in the scriptures is complex, even in an androcentric text that is occasionally misogynist and has uh, patriarchal structures, um, women still have agency, autonomy, authority, and sometimes willed power. And so wading into those narratives, um, all of those things can coincide. Uh, And so it makes it interesting to tease some of the things out and not just read them flatly. Uh, Women are property. Or um, uh, the women, you know, the women heroes of the Bible are all so empowered, they could do whatever they wanted. You know, like these two extremes, these are very complicated characters. But given that so many people don't know them, um, they're missing opportunities to see how people navigate these very crooked social systems. Um, Another impetus for the book is the footnote in another scholar's work about the names of characters, of all the people who have a name given in the Hebrew scriptures, only 9% of those given names are women's names. So women are are undernamed and almost completely unnamed in the text. Yet that 9% translates to 111. And if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, 111. And so who knows 111 biblical women by name in yeah. just the Hebrew Bible? Well, you know, most people are going to peter out at eight or 10. So this project was also conceived as a way of introducing readers to some of those named women and also some of the unnamed women to advance biblical letter- literacy on a fundamental level. That's almost convicting, the fact that, you know, naming eight to ten women is going to be like the standard for most people. When I could I could, na- I could, rattle off uh, male names, you know, um, till, from here till tomorrow probably. Uh, and something in, in the book, um, there's just so, mu- there's just so much I, that I just, just thought was just amazing. From the Egyptian midwives, it's kind of you frame them as the first deliberators of the Israelites. And uh, one thing, though, is somehow just Miriam. I've, I've never given her much thought. Uh, she's an archetypal figure. Uh, so my first book is Daughters of Miriam. And that is a study of women prophets in ancient Israel and also in the ancient Near East. And I look at women prophets in the Hebrew Bible, uh, in the Newer Testament, in uh, rabbinic literature, classical Jewish rabbinic literature, um, from around the time of the New Testament and shortly after, and in the writings of the ancient Near East. So uh, in the courts of Assyrian kings like Ashurbanipal and Esarhaddon, who show up in the book of Isaiah. So I'm looking at women prophets in all of these literatures uh, across the, the biblical time periods. And Miriam is the first female prophet in the Hebrew Bible. So I, and she's also the first prophet introduced in the Bible. So I configure women prophets as her daughters. So that's what daughters of Miriam is. So while I look at all of these prophets, 
uh, because Miriam is the first prophet, she does get uh, a significant treatment. So I certainly commend that text to you and your readers as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to pick it up because like I just for what just I, I've loved this book so much, but just whole the whole story and how how you talk about Miriam through the book is just fascinating because I there's so many things, like I said, I just completely have missed through the years. Um, and I particularly like the story to where, you know, she confronts Moses for his uh, his divorce and remarriage. And there seems to be, you know, she comes down with this disease. And I think in the text, it, it never is explicitly says that God did it or whatever. But she goes outside the camp and then God gets up, you know, the the, the pillar decides God decides to move forward. And I, you frame it in the book is that most likely the women, they refuse to go forward without her until she's welcomed back into the camp. Uh, and I just thought that was such an awesome thing that I've completely missed, but I just, that was, that was great. Um, you talk about in the book, how, you know, these were her people, you know, she's their, uh, uh, their prophet. And you, one thing you, you mentioned is that, you know, through the scriptures, Moses and Aaron are constantly being challenged. And maybe you, you, you kind of put the idea out there that maybe the reason uh, Miriam kind of seemingly fades into the backdrop through uh, some of the Exodus story in, in Numbers it's, is it's that just because possible. she's not getting challenged like they are. Well, uh, thank you for uh, bringing up Miriam and allowing me to talk about uh, Daughters of Miriam. Uh, before we go, I also want to tell uh, your audience about uh, the other book that uh, I was fortunate to have released uh, within three weeks of Woman is Midrash this year. And this is a commentary on Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Now, I know your readers just rushed to Amazon right there. Uh, and it's true that those three prophets uh, may not have <laughs> huge fan clubs. But I want to tell you about this commentary because it's in a series called the Wisdom Commentary Series. And what the Wisdom Series is is the first critical commentary series on the entire Bible, both canons and the deuterocanonical apocryphal works, which are canonical to me as an Episcopalian, um, from a feminist perspective. So feminists have written on individual books or, or maybe done a one-volume commentary. This is the first multi-volume critical scholarly commentary on the entire Bible, all done by womanist and feminist biblical scholars. So uh, check your library and it may be well worth it for uh, readers to buy the individual volumes that are interesting to them. And so I did these three little prophets uh, three quarters of the way through right. the book of the 12 and uh, found as I got into them that they could be read through a womanist lens um, and for Nahum, that reading is a rebuke of Nahum and his theology that sees God uh, as any other Iron Age male who uh, punishes a city uh, by envisioning her as a woman and then raining physical and sexual violence upon her. So my womanist reading of Nahum is a rebuke and a rejection. Um I'm going to skip Habakkuk for a moment and go to Zephaniah at the end. Uh, I read in Zephaniah, 
um, a wrestling with the end of the world, a wrestling with things can't go on uh, as they are. Uh, and I do that in conversation with one of my former students. Uh, she is uh, a rabbi, a female rabbi, and we take a, a passage in Zephaniah and we each read it through our religious traditions. So I do a Christian reading and she does a, a Jewish reading. And then back to Habakkuk in the middle, I found in Habakkuk a model for womanish conversations with God. Uh, many of us are aware that Job uh, gave God a piece of his mind and lived to tell the tale. Uh, Habakkuk does it, but in a very different way. Habakkuk is the only prophet who, whose book isn't laid out as prophetic words um, from God or on God's behalf. But Habakkuk opens up with this question, how long, Holy One? How long will you make me look at violence? So Habakkuk basically calls God to come, appear, be present, manifest, and explain the violence that's going on in his world. And God does. And God says, got a plan, starts talking about the plan involving the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk says, that's a horrible idea. The Chaldeans are terrible people. They're violent. <laughs> this is not going to work. <laughs> and God doesn't do the whole whirlwind and smiting thing um, that looks like it's going to go down at the end of Job. God actually enters back into conversation with Habakkuk and explains a little more and a little better. And Habakkuk says, well, I'm going to go over here, sit on my watch post and see how this thing turns out. And in that interplay of the prophet calling God to account for the <laughs> violence of the world, calling God to account because the prophet has a responsibility for the people and wants to make sure God is protecting and serving the people in that that f f holy fussing at God, I found a wonderful uh, womanist paradigm for the way that I also asked my questions of God as we talked about earlier. So that volume is available now. Uh, it's a much thicker right. scholarly That's volume. It's uh, written at a much more rigorous level. Uh, but I commend it to you and your readers. And I thank you for this time to talk about my work with you today. Yes, thank you so much, uh, Reverend Gaffney. Thank you. It, it's been such a great uh, just to have you on the show, to have this conversation with you. Uh, and again, uh, everyone, uh, there will be links in the show notes to all of uh, where you can connect with Will Gaffney on uh, Twitter and where you can get her website and for sure where you can go and purchase her books, which I will go ahead and recommend um, as reading just one of the three that she's uh, she's talked about on the show. It's just I really can't recommend it enough. Uh, her book, A Womanist Midrash, was very moving and challenging, and um, I've recommended it already to several people. Uh, so until next time. 